last week we went over the fruits of the Spirit, um, not simply looking at the classic fruits of the Spirit in, in um, verses uh, 20, well, from 22 to 24 of chapter 5. So we were actually looking at the whole of chapter 5 and looking at what Paul sees as the good fruit that will come out of a community um, that has understood the gospel, that has understood the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And now he is finishing with uh, some practical applications of what being spirit-led actually looks like. So what I, I want us to grasp today is, is the idea of being spirit-led. So I'm trying to redeem that phrase of being spirit-led from how it has been grasped by a lot of people in the modern church to sort of describe simply being spontaneous and um, ecstatic, which may be something spirit-led, but as we see here, what Paul sees as spirit-led is the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and as we went over last week, a, um, a heart for uh, Christ, like the fruits of the spirit, must be primarily directed toward Jesus before they are then directed toward others. Otherwise, um, everyone displays some form of a fruit of the Spirit. But, of course, the fruit of the Spirit in the Christian life, being Spirit-led, is different. So, um, primarily being Spirit-led is obviously having a, a heart that is totally enraptured with Christ. Because what does the Spirit do? The Spirit guides us into all truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We are led deeper into our love for Jesus. And here in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So this is him saying, let us be Spirit-led. Now, how are we supposed to be Spirit-led? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So this is one of the ways in which we are spirit-led in the community of God's people, is uh, not being conceited. Conceited is like excessive pride, not being conceited. And this is what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. So the Spirit, of course, promotes humility, whereas the flesh promotes conceit, like Paul is connecting here, envying and provoking. And we see that in the bad fruits of the flesh. There is enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, envy. These are all the bad fruits that come from people who are not being spirit-led. Now, conceited is to seek self-glory. It's excessive pride, but it's to seek self-glory. So the word literally is a combination of two words, which is empty and glory or vain and glory. So it's vain glory. That's what being conceited is. It's seeking self-glory. And of course, any self-glory is vain because there's no glory in yourself. So it's, it's empty. It's empty glory. Um, John Stott says that this often in our lives comes down to either an inferiority or a superiority complex. So we, we have either an inferiority or a superiority complex, and this results in us either envying or provoking. So if we have a superiority complex and we feel superior to other people, then we provoke them. We provoke them in different ways. We might provoke them by leading a conversation to something that we know will result in praise for me. Like um, if I start talking about something that I knew I could do really good and, and I, you know, guide the conversation toward that, just waiting for someone to say, oh, Tom, you're really good at that. 
and I'm, you know, and I get to feel superior again. I'm, you know, or I'm provoking people because I'm actually trying to make someone feel less. I'm trying to make them feel inferior to um, promote my superiority. And, and that's what Paul is saying here, being conceited, provoking, you provoke people. Or if you are inferior, if you have an inferiority complex, then that leads to envy. You envy people, you look at people and you're frustrated by their lives, you become bitter by them. And, and often you, um, it, it's all to do with pride and um, self-glory. If you're superior, if you feel superior, then of course you want to be seen as superior. It's prideful. Even if you're, you feel inferior, it's to do with pride because you will envy people and you will actually um, guide conversations even in a way that uh, you'll actually make yourself seem excessively bad so that someone else can come in and say, oh, you're not that bad. You're actually like a really nice person. And, and you, you, either way... You're sort of coveting this idea and you're trying to bring everything back to your own glory. And that's emptiness. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, it's, it's empty glory. Let's not be conceited. Let us not be conceited and envy others and provoke others. That's not what it means to be spirit-led. So how do we therefore kill conceit? How do we destroy conceit? How do we destroy this pride which rears its ugly head in our lives all the time? We examine ourselves against the mirror of Scripture. So verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6, if we jump ahead slightly, in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Isn't That's conceit, thinking you're something when you are nothing. You're excessively prideful, but there's really nothing in you that you can boast of. You're you're just deceiving yourself. So he says, let each one test his own work. Let him examine his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So we are to test our own work. Self-examination for the Christian is as essential as regular aircraft checks are to making sure that we don't crash and burn on our next flight. As a rigorous maintenance routine of aircrafts, of really any significant piece of machinery, and likewise for the Christian, we must examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves to actually, uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, see if we are in the faith. So he calls the church and says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So examine your life against what we know to be Christian fruit, what we have just seen in the fruits of the Spirit, and see if you're actually in the faith. Are you actually walking in step with the Spirit? Or if you looked, if you measured your life up against the mirror of Scripture, would you say, maybe I'm not in the faith. Maybe I am conceited. And much of our issue or issues today is because of the simple fact that we do not stop and reflect. We're such a busy people. We're busy socially. We're media saturated. We're always on the move. It's hard to just sit and wait. And that's a fundamental discipline of the Christian is to just wait upon the Lord to examine ourselves. So the antidote to becoming conceited, to provoking and envying is to stop and reflect. As Paul says here, test your work. Test yourself, stop and examine your life 
and see if you are in step with the Spirit. So if I can jump ahead a few more verses now and look at verses 7 to 10, we'll come back to um, verses 2 and 3 in chapter 6. But if we look at 7 to 10, this is where Paul talks about sowing to the Spirit or sowing to the flesh. And I wanted to talk about this now because I think it's very much connected to examination of our lives. Paul is asking the Galatian churches to examine their lives to see what it is that they are sowing to. And he says, if you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. And so he's saying, examine what it is that you are sowing to. This is the same idea. Um, So if we think about what sowing means, um, it's, it's, effectively what we set our minds upon, what we think about. So the same idea Paul gives in Romans 8 when he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. It's another way of saying those who sow to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh. Those who sow to the Spirit have their minds set upon the Spirit. So if, if you think about your standard week, just as a helpful example for us to think about what we are sowing to. If you think about your standard week, you have 168 hours in your week. Now, if some of you are getting a good solid eight hours a night of sleep, then we'll take off 56 hours from that. Let's say you work a 40 hour week, we'll take off 40 hours from that, and you're left with 70 hours. So 70 hours in your week, of non-work and non-sleep time. So um, at least 75% of that would be free time for you to use how you please. We do have a lot of time on our hands. And if you were to commit 30 minutes a day of uninterrupted time with the Lord in word and prayer, so not, so I'm not talking about you've got a 30-minute drive and you're going to like, listen to some scripture or spend some time praying that's great to do but but let's be honest like there is a part of us when we do that that we are fitting god in if that's our only time we're sort of fitting god into our schedule as opposed to saying lord i'm going to give you 30 minutes now where like i'm totally devoted to you this is it no distractions nothing i'm just completely devoted to you if we have 30 minutes a day of that then that only makes up five percent of our non-work and non-sleep time five percent of that time so if you take the whole week it makes up like two less than two percent but it's five percent of our non-work and non-sleep time so you've got 95 percent of time there and i wonder what it is that we are setting our minds upon in that 95 percent what are we actually sowing to because that's that's the idea here right like what are you sowing to in that 95% of your time? Or if you're not spending half an hour of uninterrupted time every day, you're 99% of your time. Like what, what are you actually sowing to? Um, how much time do you spend watching TV, playing games, socializing, um, doing, uh, you know, scrolling on social media, whatever it is, how much time do you actually spend sowing to those things? And, it's, of course, not as if it's a mathematical equation. It's not like, you know, if you reach your 30 minutes a day, boom, that's a Christian. See it right there. 25 minutes, eh, 
you got to get up there. Like it's not a it's not a mathematical equation that we can. It's not as black and white as that. But the principle is surely there that we should realize and feel the weight of that we are probably sowing to things that are likely unhealthy for us a lot of the time. What do you think about? Like, what do you think about in your free time? What, when you have 30 minutes up your sleeve, what are you driven to do? I know there's an unhealthy habit in me that often comes up where if I have like spare time, for some reason, I just am driven to watching like some highlights on YouTube, some NBA highlights or something like that. Like things that are okay, I don't mind watching them, but, but I don't like the fact that that's my initial response to spare time. And I think that's because I'm sowing to the flesh too often. I'm sowing to distraction, like I'm using it as a distraction. We must have intentional time that we are sowing to the spirit. So we must have, this is the, the practical application, right? Have specific time Every day, even if to start with, like if you've never set aside specific time, set aside five minutes, just five minutes where you say nothing, no phone, nothing. I'm just going to like spend time with the Lord now, just specific time, because it will be that intentional time as that grows, that will then shape spontaneous time throughout the day. So prayer is both intentional and spontaneous. And if we have intentional time of prayer, then you'll find that there will be spontaneous prayer that comes up through the day when you're at your desk in the workplace, when you're you know, in the car. There'll be wonderful spontaneous moments of prayer um, and they must be shaped by the intentional time. So what are you sowing to? Now, if we come back to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6. Buried in the middle of this are these practical applications for how a community will, will truly be spirit-led. And, and all of it will be underpinned by these ideas of examining ourselves and then what we are sowing to, because that is what will keep us in step with the spirit. And now Paul gives in verses two and three of chapter six, what that may look like in particular situations in the Christian community. And he gives two particular aspects. One is having a restorative nature being a people of restoration rather than destruction. And secondly, being willing to take on burdens. So in verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, Paul is talking about someone who is damaged by sin or a relationship that's damaged, not specifically between believers. Like that may be a byproduct of it, but he's talking about someone who has been caught in a transgression and it's really more their spiritual relationship with their father. It's their place in the Christian community has been damaged because they have been caught in a trespass. They've been caught in a sin. And the word here is actually uh, overtaken or surprised. So when he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression it's the word for being sort of overtaken or surprised by so it's more of a sin where this person never intended to be in that pattern it's almost just overtaken them and all of a sudden you know it's those people you hear stories of pastors who preach from the pulpit and a story comes out that they had an affair with someone else in the congregation and they say like i 
I would have never thought that that could happen, ever. But that's the scary thing about sin is it just overtakes us. And all of a sudden we're stuck in it. And Paul here is saying, when that happens, you who are spiritual, which is not a higher level of Christians, it's just he's saying those who are walking by the Spirit, which is, you know, all uh, mature Christians have the Spirit and are walking by the Spirit, you restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So this is about restoration of that person. And notice that this requires confronting that person in their sin. That The restoration process requires confronting their sin. How can you restore someone unless they recognize their sin, unless it's brought before them, and then you restore them to a place of maturity in the body? You must confront the sin. That must be addressed. So humility doesn't mean cowardice it's it's not it's not letting everyone do as they please it's not just bringing you know like patting a little pat on the bum and saying come back in it's actually moving on to maturity requires that the sin is addressed and dealt with and i would say that that's that's often a mark of unchecked pride in us where we do not want to actually confront someone um in a moment of conflict or sin because often we love ourselves too much that we we don't want to seem like the bad guy we really just want to seem like you know the peaceful person and we don't want to risk putting our image on the line by confronting someone but actually the restoration process requires that we put ourselves in that position and uh, confront sin and i think this is the difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker peacekeepers just avoid conflict, and that's how they keep the peace. Peacemakers will approach conflict with the goal of restoration, with the goal of making peace. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. We are to be peacemakers, not simply peacekeepers who avoid conflict. We're actually to approach it um, with, as Paul says, a spirit of gentleness. So we must... um, confront sin but thankfully paul is very clear to say when you do this restore that person in a spirit of gentleness restoration is always done with a delicate scalpel rather than some sledgehammer or chainsaw coming in just trying to like you know address the sin and we'll move on back to maturity it's a delicate scalpel like approach it's done with gentleness it's done with intentionality and carefulness Um, Luther explains how this should be done when he comments on this passage and he says run to him so when someone is when you're in this situation you must run to him and reaching out your hand raise him up again comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms that's how Luther is saying this restoration process should be done where you embrace them with with motherly arms So this act of restoration must require confronting sin. You will simply be doing a disservice to that person if you do not confront the sin in their life, if you allow them to simply avoid the lingering sin. It's overtaken them once, it will overtake them again unless it is dealt with. But as you comfort them, seeking to restore them to a place of joyful fellowship in the community, it is done with gentleness it's done with carefulness with motherly arms and the other way in which paul applies the fruit of being spirit-led this is in verse two 
he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the community of humble, self-reflective servants who are sowing to the Spirit will be a community of people who bear one another's burdens. And just a a quick note on verse 5. So there seems to be, to some people, a bit of a contradiction because Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in verse 5, he says, each one will have to bear his own load. Uh, But they're two different words. There's a word for burden and then there's the word for load and i think just very quickly um in verse five paul is talking about the responsibility of believers to to carry their cross they have a responsibility to carry their own load to take up their cross and follow jesus to live pursuing christ no one can do that for you no one like you will all stand before god individually and you will be judged according to what you have done in the body. And our response will be that we have trusted in Christ, that there should be fruit from that. And each one must carry his own load. So that's what Paul is talking about there. There are some things which um, individuals must carry on their own, and that is um, the weight of discipleship. It's of following Jesus, taking up our cross every day. In contrast to this, there are burdens which we can take off of our brothers and sisters, which we can take up off them and place upon ourselves in order to restore them and help them find relief. Uh, And notice that to take upon the burden from someone else, you have to in some way become burdened. You have to in some way become burdened to take on their burden. You have to take it upon yourself and take a weight upon you. So it's not carrying a burden if you offer to help someone simply when it works for you according to you like if they're in a moment of distress and you say oh andrew can i help you brother and Andrew says yes i'd love that and i'll say well i've got like between nine and ten on wednesday morning um and that's about it for two weeks can you fit in then it's not that's not bearing a burden right that's fitting him into my schedule that's me trying to bear a burden without ever being burdened Bearing a burden actually means uh, taking upon that burden. You actually become burdened. Uh, To take on a burden, you enter into that burden where they are at. You actually enter into it, which may mean giving up a Saturday night that you had been planning for months and months and months, but there is a brother or sister in a moment of distress and you drop everything to take that burden upon yourself. It may mean giving financially to someone in need, which may cost you something that you really wanted. And that's bearing a burden. And we, uh, we do this, as Paul says, because it fulfills the law of Christ. We enter into people's burdens because it fulfills the law of Christ. Now, how does this fulfill the law of Christ? Uh, Paul has stressed all throughout Galatians that we are no longer under the law. Those who try to be justified by the law... Uh, will be condemned but here he's saying um, that do this and and therefore you will fulfill the law of christ elsewhere paul actually says like in romans 8 he says the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death there is a law of the spirit of life that sets us free from the law of sin and death so those who have been freed from the curse of the law which is the mosaic law handed down the law which stood against us the law which revealed god's requirements for us to live by but we never could 
that condemns us when we are freed from that because we're not trying to be justified by that. When we turn to Christ, we are set free from the curse of the law and then we are brought under the law of Christ, which James, the, the apostle who wrote the letter of James, he uh, refers to this as the law of liberty or the law of freedom. It's a freeing law. We're actually under this new law. So we've been set free from the law of sin and death to come under the freedom of the law of Christ. Now, I think I've explained that throughout our time in Galatians enough. As we close, why does Paul specifically refer to the law of Christ here when he talks about bearing burdens? So he says, bear one another's burdens and thus you will fulfill the law of Christ. Why does Paul specifically talk about a law of Christ, particularly when he is, uh, he's been stressing through Galatians that you, you do not try and be justified by the law. You're free from the law. And yet he says here, in a spirit-led community, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And quite simply, because in the life of Jesus, in Jesus' life, ministry, and death, we see the greatest burden of all time, the burden of sinful humanity, the burden that we have all carried of never being able to please God, never being able to measure up to his standards, the burden of God's wrath against us. And we see that burden taken off of ourselves and placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. In the cross of Christ, we see our burden, our sin and shame, our judgment. We see it all transferred onto the shoulders of Christ as he hangs there on the cross in our place. He bears our burdens. A very famous passage in Isaiah 53 describes this really well. I just want to read it out and just let you... Um, meditate upon this just as we almost draw to a close um, as we think about the reason why we bear others' burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ being because we see that in the pattern of Christ where he bore our burden. He carried our burden upon himself and we get to follow now the way of the cross, the way of Jesus by bearing one another's burdens because we've seen it modelled in Jesus. And this was uh, written seven or 800 years before the cross, yet it describes it perfectly in Isaiah 53. From verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his death. Although he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Just meditate upon that for a moment. It's Christmas time, the time of uh, the where we remember the incarnation, Emmanuel, God is with us. And just think, this is God who created everything, who is sovereign over everything, who if anyone could have a superiority complex, it is God is superior to everything. And yet in his humility, he was numbered with the transgressors. They made his grave with the wicked. Think of that God actually being cast off and uh, cast off and not only from humanity, but actually um, I had a moment last night with Eliora, where she was going off to bed and, and um, she wanted to, she wanted to, um, well, she wanted her dad. I'm not trying to puff myself up, but she wanted to, to reach out and she was holding out her arms, crying, and not because she was with mum, but um, she just didn't want to go to bed and, and she was reaching out and I had to turn away from her because it wouldn't have been good for me to go then. And I thought, you know, how. How would the Father have felt? How would God the Father have felt when, when Christ the Son is there on the cross, numbered with the transgressors, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And, and the Father has to turn his eyes away. The Father has to look away because he has to pour out his wrath upon the Son. He has to pour out the complete wrath and Christ the Son takes our burden. He takes our sorrow and grief upon himself. And therefore, we bear one another's burdens because we've seen it modeled in Christ. If we are disciples of Jesus, we must follow his way of life. We must follow his way of life, which is a way of suffering. We follow the suffering servant. We jump into other people's burdens. We take their sorrows upon ourselves. Praise God we don't do that as some Messiah figure. Praise God we are not their saviors. So when we are taking other people's burdens upon, we're taking them. And really, we're trusting that the Lord will sustain us in that moment. We're not holding them ourselves. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. So we bear one another's burdens. We do it as weak and needy brothers and sisters, totally dependent upon the spirit. 
taking burdens upon ourselves. And in this way, we fulfill the law of Christ. In this way, we walk faithfully before our Father, before our God, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. And that is what a spirit-led community is called to do. We have a restorative nature. We bear one another's burdens. And central to all of this is that we do it as weak jars of clay, longing for Christ our Saviour. That is the way we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his face. and, And that is the way that we stay in step with the Spirit.